The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Ecclesia, it's great to see you. Um, my kids hate my face, by the way, so I don't know. I don't really know what to do with that. So I, you'll notice I haven't shaved since then. Um, because they're like, Dad, you're scary. You're, uh, I, I think part of it is the only time I've ever shaved my face was uh, we had a really bad vacation, like the vacation from hell, uh, like eight years ago. We rented a, a beach house we couldn't afford. Uh, Solomon was a baby, and uh, he sat in an ant pile and uh, had uh, literally ant bites all over his privates. And, uh, and then uh, we figured out uh, the hard way that that uh, beach house had lice in it. So. Um, so I spent so much time pulling all the bugs out of my daughter's hair that I eventually just shaved my head and shaved my beard. And so I th- I'm telling myself that I don't look that awful. It's just that they're associating it with that memory. That's what I'm telling myself. Um, but the truth is they can't stand it. So I'll have a beard again soon. And, uh, and my encouragement to you is, um, one, uh, let's do everything we can to gather, right? Um, in this season, If you stay home and watch the news more, you're going to lose your mind, right? Uh, It won't be good for you. Like worship and teaching and being with people is really good. So we just do it with a few other precautions. And that, I, I, there are a few other um, ways to greet one another that, uh, that we didn't mention, right? I'm a big fan of the elbow tap, so just a little elbow tap. Or I think my favorite is just when you see somebody to give them a little like this. To me, it's not true in sign language, but to me it means like, hey, I love you, I see you, I'm glad you're here, right? That's what it means if you give somebody a little uh, chest thump. So um, I, we are, I am glad to see you, and especially the fact that you lost an hour of sleep and you're still here. You're going to have a special place in heaven, just so you, <laughs> so you know. And for me, when life gets crazy, and, uh, and sometimes it has, and this week it has, um, it is so good for me um, to dig deep into the scriptures, to study the Bible, and to invite you into it. And so today, I get the pleasure of teaching you from one of my all-time favorite chapters in all of the Bible. Uh, we're gonna be together in John chapter eight. Um, there are a number of places, have you guys ever thought about uh, much about these chapters and verses that exist in the Bible? Or have you just become so used to them that they're not a big deal to you? You realize, right, that they weren't in the original text. Like, Paul did not write letters and say, verse one, hello to the church in Philippi, right? Um, Just like you wouldn't write a letter, like verse one, dear mom, right? Verse two, I'm broke, right? (laughs) Verse three, please send money, right? It just wouldn't, it's not how you write a letter. And so what's happened is that we, we literally had groups of people that when we first started to study the Bible, and if you remind me, I'll talk to you why I think it is great to study the Bible and what some of the dangers are of studying the Bible um, like a textbook, right? Um, the reality is you just had people that needed to literally, it, it's not just an expression, they needed to be on the same page. They were trying to study in a classroom and they were like, how do we get everybody on the same page? And so there were different people that tried to do this. One guy kind of came forward and his uh, seemed to work the best and everybody adopted them. And there are places that you'll read the Bible and you'll be like, nailed it. Like that's exactly where that chapter should go. And there are places that you'll, you'll be reading it like right in the middle of a story, it'll change chapters. And you're like, was that guy drinking that day? Or was he not like, 
Did he even read what he was doing when he divided those chapters? What I can tell you is that he paid close attention in the, in the book of John. That in John, we get this beautiful symmetry. Um, in the passage I taught you two weeks ago, um, from John 6, in the multiplication, Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves. Then he did this other amazing thing out on the water with the disciples. And then he explained who he was. Remember, they came back around him. The crowds came back to him. And they were like, hey, Jesus, do that, do that bread thing again, right? They're like, you're the bread guy. And Jesus was like, you don't get it. You think I am what I do. You don't know who I am. And then he started to explain, I'm the bread of life, right? And the whole chapter just holds together beautifully. Does anybody remember that sermon at all? No, two, three. I'm very highly effective pastor. Lord, I need Zoloft or something quick. This is so depressing. But you can pick up the podcast and it was really a good sermon. I put a lot of work into it. I didn't put much work into this sermon. So... Um, <laughs> So we'll see how this one goes. In chapter eight, we get the same kind of symmetry, right? Jesus is gonna do a thing, then he's gonna say who he is, and then people are gonna respond to it. And today we're gonna look at it, but we're gonna look at it from a slightly different perspective. We're gonna, we're gonna kind of back it off a little bit and approach it in a more Quentin Tarantino or Hebrew kind of way. And we're gonna look at the beginning, the ending, and then the middle, right? You know, that's how Quentin Tarantino will tell a story. And sometimes when you're telling a story and you don't know where you're at in the story, it helps you to look at it in a different way, right? So a different than like, um, Anybody here watch those awful Hallmark movies? You can admit it, right? And literally, like, they, like within five minutes, you know exactly what's gonna happen by the end of the film, right? Or George Clooney made what I thought was a great film a decade or so ago. Uh, it's the one where he's, um, it's, a, it's a really bad hurricane kind of thing. Perfect storm, right? And, uh, but literally, great movie. But within five minutes of the movie, you're like, the guy's gonna sink, right? This is how it's going down. You, you, there wasn't this sense of mystery. Hebrews would tell stories at, at, like the way they did in, in Song of Solomon, if you read it. And you'll, you'll not know, are we at the beginning, the middle, or the ending? And so today, we're gonna look at these texts um, in a little bit of a flip order. I wanna start with the first part of the passage in John 8. And we're gonna read this first section, and then I'm gonna invite you to take a few moments to consider personally what this passage means to you. You're actually gonna need uh, to provide an answer. So, so dig into this part of the text, and, and I want you to really be aware of what does this speak specifically to me? So in John chapter eight, this is what it tells us, that, that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and he woke early in the morning to return to the temple. We're in the season where Pastor Chris just came back from the Holy Land and you know he's always gonna tell you a story from the Holy Land. So let me just um, show you a quick photo. There's some of you in the room that were here with me recently. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is one of the trees on the Mount of Olives. Um, some guides will tell you when you're there, they'll say these trees are as old as Jesus. They're, they're not as old as Jesus. Uh, this one carbon dated to around 950 though. So uh, 950 years old. So almost a thousand years old. That's a pretty awesome tree. And we know that Jesus was on this mountain and then he would have walked down the mountain of olives towards the old city of Jerusalem. He, he specifically would have gone into the temple through the gate that you can see here in the old city walls. They call that the golden gate. Now there are many gates of the old city. This gate is one that you don't get to walk through anymore. It's been closed, it's been sealed. 
uh, as the story goes, and this is the gate that Jesus would have entered to go right onto the, the temple uh, area, the temple mount today, or today, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, as the story is told, we don't really know, but that they sealed this gate because the belief was uh, that the Christian Messiah or the Jewish Messiah, that if Jesus was returning, he would come again and enter the golden gate. So that one of the Muslim uh, regimes thought, well, we'll keep the Messiah from coming back by sealing the gate. Um, my guess is a closed door is not gonna work in keeping Jesus out, just so you know. Uh, but it's a fascinating story. And in some ways it works for security now at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that people don't go in and out of that gate. So in John 8, that's just to picture in your mind, Jesus has come from the Mount of Olives, he's walked down, he's walked through the Golden Gate into the temple area. And it tells us that when he arrived, the people surrounded him. So he sat down and he began to teach them. While he was teaching, the scribes and Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Now already we know that this is a unique kind of circumstance, right? This wasn't just, hey, this woman, there's a rumor and Jesus, you ought to deal with it. They tell us that she was caught in the act of adultery, but obviously this is unique because she wasn't caught in adultery alone and now she's alone, right? So it's impossible to be caught in the act of adultery by yourself but the woman's the only one there. And they stood her before Jesus. And the Pharisees said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Moses says in the law that we're to kill such, a woman by such women by stoning. What do you say about it? And they are already telling us this was a setup for Jesus. His answers would give them grounds to accuse him of crimes against Moses' law. And Jesus bent over and he wrote something in the dirt with his finger. Again, this is one of the places Bible teachers and preachers love to speculate, nobody knows. I gotta guess that they recruited one of their pals so that they could catch this girl in adultery and maybe he wrote that guy's name, right? Like, where's he? No idea. It tells us they persisted in badgering Jesus and he stood straight up. And Jesus said, let the first stone be thrown by the one among you who has not sinned. And once again, Jesus bent down to the ground and he resumed writing with his finger. Again, we don't know what he said, but whatever he said in the dirt created a moment of introspection for the Pharisees that were around him. And I can tell you as a pastor, I'm gonna use a thousand words today and it's hard to create a moment where you're introspective. Whatever Jesus did, it invited them to look inside. Maybe he wrote something about their own sin, their own failures. It tells us that the Pharisees who heard him stood still for a few moments and then began to leave slowly, one by one. Fascinating here, he says, beginning with the older men. Have you ever noticed that in this passage before? You wonder why the older men leave first, right? Those of us that are older men, we have a bit of a clue. Anybody remember what it was like to be a younger man? I knew a lot as a young man. I was really, really, I'd figured some things out as a young man. As an older man, what's, I'm trying to figure out the polite preaching way to say it. Like, you, you got a lot more like muck on your boots, right? 
You've stepped in it a few times. Right? I gotta, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I get to the point where I don't trust somebody unless they've stepped in it a few times, right? These older men were like, yeah, I, I can't throw the first stone. Eventually, only Jesus and the woman remained. And Jesus looked up. And he said, dear woman, where is everyone? Are we alone? Did no one step forward to condemn you? She said, Lord, no one's condemned me. Jesus said, well, I do not condemn you either. All I ask is that you go and from now on, you avoid the sins that plague you. Ecclesia, I love this story, but I'm more curious what it speaks to you. This is my question for you, and I want you to take, literally, we got 45 seconds, because I got more preaching to do. Um, you got 45 seconds. What is it about this story in particular that offers hope to you specifically? Not to the world in a vast, abstract way. What about this story gives you hope, makes you hopeful? So you got 45 seconds. Turn to a couple of people around you and tell them what makes, gives you hope uh, as you hear this story. Share it with them, and then I'm going to ask you, so you got to seriously not just talk about lunch or something, all right? Go. All right, I'm going to ask you, do you not love the sound of babies in the 9 a.m. service? This is just a little taste of heaven to have babies just talking to us and telling us what's up. Okay, those of you over here, um, what is it specifically? Let's at least get a couple. You guys seem to be the most engaged of everybody. Some of these people were talking about tacos. I could read it on their lips. Um, what, what is it about this story that offers you hope personally? You can write your path at any moment, right? You could, you could be going down the wrong road and, and, and encounter Jesus and all of a sudden you're on the right road again. It's, that's very hopeful. Somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. He's the only one that could have condemned her. He didn't condemn her. And just the reality of forgiveness, right? To be forgiven by Jesus. Right. And th this is part of what Jesus is going to explain here in the next part of this passage, that I did come and I'm the only one that could judge you, right? Because this is, this is the truth, right, Ecclesia? Well, if I, answer, if I ask you the question, like, do you know people's motives? You'd tell me you don't, but the reality is we make assumptions about them all the time, right? But the only heart we can judge, right, is our heart. So, and, and we often fail to do that, right? So this is the one, and... and and yet we don't instantly know our own motives. We actually have to search for them. Anybody have that experience recently where you're like, why did I get so defensive about that? And you had to stop and go like, hey, what was that about? And you actually had to, to like think long and hard. This is one of the places that the church has missed it, right? I, I grew up in, in a church that we used to do, anybody used to do these, they'd call them sword drills. So you'd, you get your Bible out and then they'd give you a passage. You'd have to flip to it. Whoever got there the fastest was the most spiritual. Right? <laughs> and, um, which it was a, is now a totally useless skill in an iPhone age where everybody's reading the Bible on their iPad. Um, but, but the idea was, and I really believed it. I think I, I was taught the Bible's a sword, right? It's a two-edged sword. And I'll be honest, Ecclesia, I thought it was a sword we used to to cut people with. 
You're wrong. You're condemned. God doesn't like people like you, right? And we cut people with it. And the reality is like you read the Bible and it's really saying like, Jesus didn't come to judge you, but the Bible is a sword, it's a scalpel that you can use for self-surgery. So you can actually peel back the, the layers of your heart like an onion and see, hey, what's going on there, right? So when we stop judging other people and we actually decide, maybe I ought to judge my own motives and find out what's going on in my heart, right? Something beautiful begins to happen. What about this section? Get a couple from over here. Your sins are written in sand, not in stone. Yeah, yeah, your sins are written in sand, right? Isn't that beautiful? You can go to the beach one day and write them down real quick when nobody's around before the waves come in and just see them disappear again, right? Like they're, they're not written in stone. Jesus didn't broadcast the sins of these people to anyone, right? Like I, I think most of us live with this sense, Ecclesia. In fact, I've become convinced this is true for everybody. That everybody lives with this sense and one day I'm gonna get caught. If people really knew who I am, if they really knew what I've thought or what I've done, and, and in this story, we find out that this woman, she gets caught and she's not caught, right? She's caught and she's not judged. And we get to live in this freedom that it's not about getting caught. We get to be these people that are forgiven completely. Somebody else from this section. Don't worry about other people's sins, right? The, Jesus reframed all of it for us, right? So all of a sudden, like, like if you're, any time you're spending worrying about somebody else's sins or like this is one of the places in Christianity where we become obsessed with like, I'm convinced that for a lot of Christians, I'm a Christian because it's really fun to be right. Right, being right is awesome, right? If you're right all the time in life, you just feel like I've figured things out, I'm right. And, and there's this way of living the Christian life and reading the Bible that truth, truthfully, it's not very Christian, but it's like, I'm gonna read these stories from the Bible so that I can tell people how right I am again, right? Anybody know like a person who's got a strong theological position there, like an Armenian or a Calvinist, and they're reading the Bible, they're like, this is gonna be really helpful to show the Calvinists how wrong they are again, right? And, um, and you just like, you live in this place where the, like the Bible's not something you fight about. It's not something you use against other people. Like if you're doing that, and there are a lot of people doing that, you need to realize like nobody likes you. Nobody does. Like, like nobody likes the person that thinks the Bible's the thing to fight about, right? The Bible's the thing that offers hope for the whole world that calls us into the story of Jesus, not the thing that makes you act like a jerk, right? If you're that person, your mother doesn't like you, right? She's praying you won't come home this Christmas. Because being at the table with people that fight about the Bible, right? Oh, it's exhausting. As opposed to being at the table with people who see the Bible as a means of hope and beauty and they invite people into that story. That's a gift, right? A couple more over here. She didn't even ask for grace. Did you notice in the story? Like she didn't, she didn't go, hey, Jesus, will you forgive me? Jesus just like, I'm gonna forgive you. Whether you, you want it or not, right? Anybody here have trouble forgiving yourself? Isn't it great to know that Jesus goes, hey, you, whether you forgive yourself or not, I'm gonna forgive you. And when I forgive you, it hopefully will prompt you to realize you can forgive yourself, right? Be really helpful. One more from over here. I know we got a lot of smart people in this section. 
hope, right? There's real hope. If Jesus can forget, and we, we realize like Jesus didn't stratify sins. There weren't the really bad ones and the not so bad ones. It's just, there's just people that were broken and, and we have every reason to hope. Let's get a couple from you over here. Yes. That's right, right. She's saying, after you make a mistake, right, you got the chance to learn from that mistake. Like, that's hopeful for everybody. That's, that's the thing that all of us want to go, like, you know, we would love to be the people. Solomon talks about this in Ecclesiastes, where we learn from men and women of old. But the reality is, like, you can read all the history. You can read, you can know your parents' mistakes. And sometimes you got to make those mistakes yourself to realize, like, that was a bad plan. I don't want to do that anymore. Let's get one more. Somebody back here. Don't talk all at once. We need somebody to step forward with something brilliant. You're the last one. That's a lot of pressure. Isn't that beautiful? This is so good. So he's, he's saying he had an ability to humble the crowd without shaming them, right? So he called them to live introspectively, but he, did, he could have gotten up, right? I mean, can you imagine if, if we were Jesus, how dangerous it would be? Like, we know all of your secret sins, and we'd fire them off, right? We would just, we would destroy people. If we knew that, if we had that knowledge, we, we could use it to be so unkind. Jesus knew all of that, and he just held it in the most graceful way he could hold it, right? That, that ought to lead us all to trust Jesus. So then after that, Jesus is going to tell them who he is. We're not going to look at that statement until the end. Now we're going to look at after he tells them who he is in light of this passage, right? And he's saying, again, like he did in John 6, I'm not this human doing, even though he was a human, he was human and divine, I'm a human being. Who I am is more important than even what I do. So he's explained this in John 8, verse 13. They're going to respond, and by the way, they're not really thrilled with what Jesus says about himself. So in verse 13, the Pharisees speak up, and they go, Jesus, what you're claiming about yourself cannot possibly be true. Now, we don't know where these Pharisees are right now, like in heaven or wherever they might be, but can you imagine being known as the people that came to Jesus and said that can't possibly be true? Like, that's a bad day for you, right? Like, you're the one that told Jesus he was wrong, and yet we do it all the time, right? They said, the only person bearing witness is you. There's nobody else saying this about you. And Jesus said, even if I'm making bold claims about myself, who I am, what I've come to do, I'm speaking the truth. You see, I know where I came from, and I know where I'll go when I'm done here. You know neither where I come from nor where I will go. Right? Jesus saying, my identity ought to be really important to you. You spend your time judging by the wrong criteria, by human standards. Exactly what we often do, right? But I'm not here to judge anyone. Isn't that good news, Ecclesia? The only one that's capable of, of judging you didn't come to judge you. He's not looking to condemn you. He's not looking to hold your failures against you. He says, I act in harmony with the one who sent me. And he's been explaining, the one who sent me sent me on a mission of grace and forgiveness. Your law states that if the testimonies of two witnesses agree, their testimony is true. Well, I testify about myself and so does the father who sent me here. 
This is what you can start to see here. I like it, and I hope it's happening for you too. The Pharisees don't know much. They hadn't figured it all out. But what I like about this passage is you can almost see the wheels turning in their head, right? You guys know that I can tell when you guys are actually listening to me and when you're thinking about um, like the Korean barbecue you're gonna eat next, right? The wheels, the wheels for the Pharisees are turning. They're like, okay, Jesus, we hear you, but we don't understand. So now they ask another question. They're like, where's the father then? Who testifies on your behalf? Where is he? And Jesus says, you don't know the Father or me. If you knew me, then you would also know the Father. And Jesus said all of these things in the treasury. He was in the area of the temple where they collected the money. While he was teaching in the temple, followers and opponents alike gathered to hear him, but none of his enemies tried to seize him because his time had not yet come. And what you'll know if you read the rest of this passage is that they they just keep dialoguing. They're trying to figure it out. They don't know, but Jesus is just, he's hanging in there with them. He's giving them one more clue, a little bit more context to tell them who he is. So now let's backtrack to, uh, to verse 12 where Jesus says clearly who he is, not just what he does. And this is what he says in verse 12. This is one of the most beautiful passages. Jesus says, to the crowd, I'm the light that shines through the cosmos. What do you hear there first, right? Isn't it good to live in Houston this week and then the last couple of weeks where it's like we get to be a people that live in the light, right? Anybody else gone out in the sunshine? I just naturally had this reflexive like, isn't it like a reflex now? You just like, oh, oh, it feels good. Don't you just pray for these people in like Minnesota where you're like, God help those people. What's happening to them right now? (laughs) Anybody lived through those kind of winters before? (laughs) What happens in those kind of winters? You get seasonal depression. In one of the last services at the same time, two people said you get fat. It's at the exact same time, right? (laughs) Because that's what you do. You got nothing else to do. You're like, you're inside. You're like, well, I guess I'll make chili. And you're like... Well, I'll have beer, and then beer leads to making more chili, which leads to more beer, and then you gotta throw in Fritos and cheese, and by the end of the winter, you're like, who is this person, right? You gotta grow a beard like me to hide how fat you are. Not enough black clothes in the world, right? It, it, you start getting really, really depressed, right? You, if you're, you're stuck in the darkness for too long, things don't go well, right? And Jesus says, hey, listen, I'm the light and you're made to live with me in the light. And then he, but he, I love what he says. He says, I'm the light that shines through the cosmos. What's Jesus saying? Like at that point in time, everybody had their little ethnic gods. Egypt had their sun god and everybody had their god. And he goes, I'm the god for everyone. My love is for everyone. No one's left out. The whole cosmos, the whole world. And then the next part is even more encouraging, I think. Jesus says, if you what? Say it with me. If you walk with me. me. Isn't it beautiful that he says, I'm God and I came, but I came to walk with you. I don't know about you, but for me, it's like every night, that's all I want. You ask anybody in my family, just go, I just walk around and go, will anybody walk with me? Anybody want to walk with me? My Labrador is so faithful. Like she's always like, I'll walk with you, right? (laughs) I'll walk with you. And there's just something about going on a walk together, right? He, and Jesus is going, all you gotta do is walk with me. Now remember his, his invitation to the disciples at the beginning was he said, come and what? Follow me. 
Like if you're leading the walk, if you're like every day, like Jesus, let me tell you where we're going today. She's like, I might have a better clue for that. It might be better if you followed me for a little while. But I find a lot of encouragement in the fact that that being in relationship with Jesus means we're walking together. And this is what he says. He says, I'm the light. If you walk with me, you'll thrive in the nourishing light that gives life and you will not know darkness. Now, I'm not the kind to have a word for every year, but I kind of feel like 2020, thrive would be a pretty great word. Anybody else want to thrive in 2020? God's just saying, if you'll walk with me, all the best of who you are, I'll help bring out the best in who you are. And yeah, you're imperfect and broken just like the lady before and just like the Pharisees I pointed out to them. Sure, you're imperfect and broken, but you know what? You're also gifted and you're loved. And if you'll walk with me, you're gonna thrive. I hear those words from Jesus. I just think that's, that's what I want. I wanna read to you another passage where Jesus describes, uh, Jesus <coughs> is described as the light, right? This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Um, This is in Revelation chapter 21. And John, the same one who wrote uh, the Gospel of John, had these visions. And they're beautiful, they're apocalyptic. They need some teaching and explanation, many of them, because they have a lot of symbols. Uh, But the last chapter is this vision of heaven. If you know somebody that you love that's in heaven, it's really an encouraging passage. Um, If I ever come see you in the hospital, and I start reading Revelation 21 to you, it means you're gonna die soon, just so you know. (laughs) That's your deathbed, so just be ready. If Revelation 21 comes and I start singing a really kind of sad hymn, um, we're at the end, but don't worry, you'll be in heaven soon. Um, But this passage, it's just beautiful. This This is what John says, right? John, John is, uh, he's trying to write down this vision. And he says, this is what happened. I, I got this vision. I looked again and I could hardly believe my eyes. Everything above me was new. Everything below me was new. Everything around me was new because the heaven and earth that had been, been had passed away and the sea was gone completely. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It was descending out of heaven from God, prepared. This is the most beautiful metaphor. He says, the holy city, heaven, it was prepared like a bride on her wedding day, adorned for her husband and for his eyes only. I gotta tell you, Ecclesia, I love doing Ecclesia weddings. Not just because you guys tend to have an open bar and really good food. I did one on Friday night, good company catered it. I'm like, is this heaven or what? We, we get good company at the wedding, but it's because I get the best seat, right? And to get to stand by a groom as literally the bride hits that spot, that marker, and I, every time I just turn and look at him, right? Because I'm like, that, that look right there. But he's like, that's my bride. And John says, that's what it's like when you see heaven. It's a, it's a little bit like this moment where the groom says, I cannot believe that woman loves me. Adorned for his eyes only, and I heard a great voice coming from the throne, and the voice said, see, the home of God is with his people. He will live among them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them, and the prophecies are fulfilled. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. Anybody have somebody that you love when you're in a time of sorrow, just wipe a tear from you? And it tells us that when we're in heaven, Jesus himself will wipe away our tears. Death will be no more. Mourning, no more. 
crying no more, pain no more, for the first things have gone away. And the one who sat on that throne spoke, right? To his creation, he said, I am making all things new. And then he turned to John, he said, John, remember you're supposed to write this stuff down. Like people later on are need to read it, right? Because <laughs> John was so caught up in the vision. And he goes on and describes how it was similar to Jerusalem and measurements and all of this. And then I'm gonna skip to the part that I love. In verse 22, he says this, and in the city, I found no temple because the Lord God, the all-powerful and the lamb are the temple. He said, it wasn't like Jerusalem where you needed to have a temple where God dwelt. God was everywhere. And in the city, there is no need for the sun to light the day or the moon, the night, because the resplendent glory of the Lord provides the city with warm, beautiful light. And the Lamb illumines every corner of the new Jerusalem. Ecclesia, Jesus is the light. He's the light of the world. He's called us to live in that light. That means we don't live in fear. We don't live in darkness. We don't have to hide. You don't have anything you need to hide. You don't need to live in fear that you're gonna get caught. You are who you are, imperfect and broken. Come to Jesus and together let's live in that light. It offers hope, it offers beauty, it offers warmth. It's the place that we thrive and day by day we get to walk with him. So I'm gonna invite you now into communion. I'm gonna say a prayer over you. And as we go out to live in the world that God's called us to live in, I'm gonna pray that we can live well in that light together. Not perfectly, but well. God, we thank you that you take us by the hand. We thank you that in this life that can be so confusing, we don't know uh, where our next step ought to be or what direction that we go, that we've been reminded in this story that we could be on the wrong path and very quickly we can end up back on the right path. We're reminded of this story that the very one who knows us and made us, the only one who's perfect, he didn't come to judge us. In fact, just the opposite. He came to treat us with dignity and love and respect. And like in this story, we don't know the, the name of this lady, but we know that Jesus did. And we know that he treated her like a woman with a name, with a story who was made in the image of God. And Lord, we believe that's the case for everyone in this room and every person we'll encounter this week. And in an age where we can get caught up in fear, in an age where we can get lost in uh, a focus on self-preservation, Lord, would you invite us into this story to be more like Jesus, to see the other, to, to create safety around them so that they feel safe, they feel loved, they feel accepted in the same ways that we can feel that because we know you. We thank you, Lord, for the chance that we have to worship together, to be blessed in this hour and to carry that into the rest of our life. We pray all of this together, and we pray it in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.